Dear Father in heaven, we're very thankful for this opportunity to again direct our attention to the most important book in the world. And Lord, now as we are doing that, we ask that you'll fill us with your spirit, uh, give us wisdom, help us to sense your presence here. Please remove any evil influence that might distract us. And Lord, if, uh, if the devil tries to infect us with the spirit of dozing, I pray that you'll awaken us and help us to be attentive and alert and that the Holy Spirit will energize us with these truths. Uh, bless Lord again, pray that you'll be with me and as I speak and all of the presentations taking place uh, during the GYC session. We ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And um, this is a subject that uh, I've been studying lately. I put it into a small book called The Glorious Mount. And when I read this study and I, I went through the Gospels where this appears, I became very excited. And I wonder why I haven't heard more about it. It's one of the most important experiences that you find in the New Testament. You find this in Matthew, you find it in Mark, you find it in Luke. It's something that transpires just before the crucifixion. Now I'm going to go ahead and read these verses. Uh, I'm doing it from the book of Mark. You'll also find it in Matthew chapter 16, just for your own interest, and Luke chapter 9. Same story, very small variations. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became shining exceedingly white, such as no longer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were all greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around and they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. This is a very, very important story. Uh, this is not just a vision. This actually happened. Three people don't have the same dream at the same time. This was an experience. Jesus really did talk to Moses and Elijah. And it refers to it as a vision in one gospel, simply meaning that they had this vision. They saw something into the supernatural, but it was very real. Now, before I go into the story, I want you to know this story is fulfillment of the last prophecy in the Old Testament. Turn with me to the book of Malachi, chapter 4. And you know this prophecy. Verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, that I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Remember the law of Moses. Any law or the law that I gave him on Mount Sinai? I think he's specifically talking about the Ten Commandments. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Remember the law of Moses. Behold, I send you Elijah. You turn the page, and there in the New Testament, what two individuals appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? This vision, this story in the Bible is often referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration or the Glorious Mount. Moses and Elijah appear. Now, not only is it true that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but Elijah really did come. He appeared to Jesus. And Moses came and appeared. Why these two? Well, first of all, I want to back up and I want to ask you, why did they go up the mountain? It tells us in uh, 
Luke chapter 9, he took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray. What are they praying about up on the mountain? Why couldn't they pray anywhere? Why did he take just them? Who else did he take with him in the Garden of Gethsemane to come apart and pray with him? Peter, James, and John. The disciples were praying, but he asked Peter, James, and John specifically. They drew closer to him to pray with him in a special way. Of course, they went to sleep. When he raised the daughter of Jairus, who did he take with him into that room? Peter, James, and John. They were like the, the trinity of leadership among the apostles. And if you read in the book Desire of Ages, page 419, what are they praying about? They go up on the mountain. Here is specifically what Jesus is praying about. He pleads that they may witness a manifestation of his divinity that will comfort them in the hour of his supreme agony with the knowledge that he is of a surety the Son of God and that his shameful death is part of the plan of redemption. They were getting ready to doubt that he was the Messiah. They were getting ready to go through an hour of severe trial. Now, Christ was going to be glorified after he ascended. But before his glory, there was a great test of Gethsemane. And he wanted them to have an experience on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah before they went through this valley of the shadow of death of Calvary that would sustain them. Are we going to have our faith tested soon? Is that test going to be every bit as uh, serious and severe as what happened with Gethsemane? Yeah, have you read about the time of Jacob's trouble? There's a great time of testing coming to God's people. Matter of fact, Jesus tells us that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. How are we going to endure this time of testing, this time of trouble such as there never has been since there was a nation is going to be coming upon the world? How do we prepare for that? How are we going to be victorious? How can we be overcomers through this trial that's before us? Might I suggest to you that you need to follow Jesus up on the mountain and have a vision of Moses and Elijah. We need to be praying on the mountain now to prepare us for that valley that is coming soon. So they climb up this tall mountain. We don't even know what mountain it was. There's a lot of theories. There's not very many mountains in the promised land that are like Everest or nothing as high as the Sierras. But, you know, it could have been one of the mountains of Lebanon get up eight or 10,000 feet. But they went up a high mountain for them. You could see a long ways. They were separated from the multitude. They wanted to get as close to God as they could. You notice in the Bible how many times when God is about to do something great, someone climbs a mountain. When Moses got the law, he went up on Mount Sinai. When Elijah had that uh, glorious experience of fire coming down, he went up on Mount Carmel. And of course, when Jesus died for us, he went up a mountain too, didn't he? Mount Calvary. So they climb the mountain. And Jesus begins to pray. And he's praying earnestly for them that they might have this experience that would strengthen their faith when this trial came. And what do the disciples do during this time? Well, if you read in Luke chapter 9, verse 32, same story. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. So at this critical moment, when they should have been praying, what are they doing? They're sleeping. That's why if you're going to sleep during a sermon during this weekend, don't sleep during this one. It'll be especially conspicuous. <laughs> so you want to, if you see someone, someone around you, you care about them. A sanctified elbow, they'll appreciate it. <laughs> okay? What is the condition of the church when Jesus comes back? How many, what percent of the ten virgins are sleeping when Jesus comes. Not 50%. 50% are wise, 50% are foolish. 100% sleep. It's kind of scary. How many of the disciples went to sleep in the Garden of Gethsemane at that critical moment when Jesus said, pray that you enter not into temptation? They all were heavy with sleep. They went to sleep. And here, what would you give for a vision of Moses and Elijah? Not just a vision, not a dream, to really see them. And they're sleeping through most of it. Very little is said about that conversation because they slept through most of it. And I think that in, in eternity, when we look back, we're going to find out how many precious hours we've lost when we could have been praying and preparing 
and how much more difficult our trials are going to be because we're not capitalizing on the opportunities now to fortify our minds with the truth of God's word. Now, before I go any farther, I need to just tell you, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. They represent the word of God. And now when we should be studying the law and the prophets, many are sleeping. Uh, it's important for you to wake up every morning. Some of you say, well, I'm a night person, and I, I don't, you know, I don't understand it. I'm married to someone like that where she becomes very energetic just before she goes to bed and does, uh, becomes very active and she can think clearly. For me, I wake up, I'm bright, and it's worse from the morning on through the day. My IQ goes down <laughs> through the day. My afternoon programs, if you're going to miss any, those are the ones to miss. I'll probably take a nap with you <laughs> during those programs. But, you know, when did God rain the manna down from heaven? in the morning. And that manna represents the Word of God. And they had to go out and gather it. And they had to then bake it and knead it and boil it and fry it and whatever they did with it. They did all kinds of things. I guess if you eat manna for 40 years, you make manna fondue. You got all kinds of things you do with your manna. Because, but they, they got it in the morning. And if they didn't go get it, the sun rose and it would begin to melt. And I think a lot of us have lost an opportunity for spiritual nourishment because we're sleeping when we ought to be getting that manna. One time uh, there was a young actor and he wanted that famous playwright Carl Sandburg to um, come and watch him at a play he was performing, an off-Broadway performance, and finally he persuaded Carl Sandburg to come and to sit through his performance. And the actor was doing his thing on stage and periodically he'd glance and he saw Carl Sandburg there sleeping. And he was disappointed afterward he came up to the great playwright and he said, Mr. Sandberg, I wanted you to come and to see my performance. I noticed you slept through most of it. I wanted your opinion. And Carl Sandberg said, young man, sleep is an opinion. <laughs> and I wonder sometimes if we're telling God our opinion of him is we're bored. Sleep is an opinion. If you thought the Lord was coming in one week, how careful would you use your hours to prepare and to study and to pray? And by the way, does anyone here know that they have a week left? Had some church members that got the news uh, that they're terminal this last week uh, and that they don't have much time, a few months. And I thought, what would it be like? Praise the Lord, they've got a good relationship with the Lord and they're almost excited because they think, hey, my next conscious thought once I go to sleep is the resurrection. Can you imagine having that attitude, knowing you're saved and knowing that you've only got a few weeks before you're going to wake up in glory? So many people I meet when they get that news, instead they just, you know, they're so afraid of dying. But if you're saved, it's like Paul said, you know, I can't wait to depart and be with the Lord. Paul meant my next conscious thought is the presence of the Lord, right? He said, but I've got to stay around and help you out. And I suppose if I found that I was terminal, my concern would then be my family. Got to get my house in order, do everything I can for the, the kids and those kind of things. You worry about the ones left behind, but for me, I've done some funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. But I've done some funerals where you know where the deceased are going to be. At least you're pretty confident. I've done some funerals where it's very sad because uh, you know too. Or you, Anyway. But I've done some for people that I knew were saved. The, the pastor who baptized me, Pastor Joe Phillips, when his wife died, I realize I don't have to stand here, I got a microphone. When his wife died, she was out working in the garden, 94, five years old, Mrs. Phillips. She went in the house, she did her Sabbath school study guide, and she filled in her study guide, and it was a quote from, I think, the book of Habakkuk, and it says, we shall not die. And she wrote that out, and then she had a stroke and died. This lady used to glow and she'd talk about Jesus and she'd just stand up and quote scripture from memory in her 90s. Just spirit-filled, spirit-filled. I knew her for years. I know she's going to be saved. When I did her funeral and she was there in the coffin and her family's around and they're crying for her, I said, I don't know why you're crying. Because I want to trade places with her. Wouldn't you want to be her? No more pain? No more sorrow? Next conscious thought, 
She comes out of the grave. Her body's not 90. It's 25. Except 100 times better than any 25-year-old here. Because it's an immortal body. And you're going to see the presence of the Lord. You're going to live forever. Can you imagine that? So, would you like to have that confidence every day? Then you need to spend time on the mountain with Moses and Elijah now. So we've got to be awake. The Lord's trying to wake us up. Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. You're going to find that all through the Bible. They're the two witnesses in Revelation. Matthew chapter 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy but fulfill. Moses is a symbol for the law, Elijah the prophets. Those are the words that are used for scripture in the Bible. In Revelation, you read about the two witnesses. Who do you think the two witnesses are? It's the Word of God. Now, we often say the New and the Old Testament. That's another way of saying the Law and the Prophets, the Word of God. See, today, you and I divide the Word of God, the New and the Old Testament. In Christ's day, did they have a New Testament? They still used a dual frame of mind for the Word of God. The Word of God is sharper than any what? Two-edged sword. And so God, how many eyes do you have? It's because you, you get depth. It gives you perspective. And you got two ears to hear in stereo. And you got two nostrils for a reason. I'm not sure what it is. But um, so, you know, God gives you perspective through these, this uh, dual um, revelation that he gives us. It, the reason you got two legs it's hard to stand on one leg. It's easy to push someone over on one leg. You're a lot more stable with two legs. And so, you know, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. So these two witnesses, the law and the prophets. Now, um, you've got a lot of verses to support that. How do you identify the church in the last days? The dragon was wroth, Revelation 12, 17, with the woman, and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed that does what? Commandments of God, the law, and has the... Testimony of Jesus, the prophets. You read about it in Isaiah 8, 16. Bind up the testimony, spirit of prophecy. Seal up the law, commandments of God. Isaiah 8, 20. According to the law and the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, there's no light in them. All through the Bible, you're going to find out Moses and Elijah represent these two things. By the way, you're going to run into uh, charismatic brothers and sisters. And they believe the two witnesses are literally Moses and Elijah. They think they're going to come back, they're going to die, their bodies are going to lie in the street, and they're going to rise again. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a zany belief, and I don't mean to ridicule them, but they've got their glorified bodies now, don't they? How can they die? I mean, that won't make any sense. So, these two represent uh, the Word of God. Now, it's interesting. How many individuals in the Bible fasted 40 days? And 40 nights. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Moses in the wilderness, Elijah in the wilderness, Jesus was led of the Spirit out into the wilderness. They fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And with Moses and Elijah, they had supernatural assistance for their fast. Moses went up the mountain, he was just in the glory. We don't even know if he drank water. Elijah ate this angel's food, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus, he fasted a real fast where it says he was hungry. He did it the hard way. But you got those three individuals. How many tabernacles were there in the Bible? How many sanctuaries? Three. Think about it for a second. One in the wilderness with Moses, right? We all together? One during the time of Solomon and Elijah. That was then destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the third one was built. And they said the glory of that third one would be greater than the others because Jesus came to that temple. So one during the time of Moses. One during the time of Elijah. One during the time of Jesus. Peter said, let's build three tabernacles. One for you. How many parts of salvation are there? Justification through Moses. Sanctification, Elijah's message was one of uh, bringing Israel back to God. Sanctification through Elijah. Jesus is God become man. He's a glorification. Uh, this story is just so important. And it happens just before the cross. 
because this represents the experience we need before the cross. Now, there's something else I think is very interesting here. Uh, of course, Moses and Elijah represent the two witnesses. And uh, uh, it represents the ultimate endorsement. Now, you're, you're coming on the scene back in the time of Christ. There have been a lot of people who said, I'm the Messiah. As a matter of fact, you read in the book of Acts, and they said, oh, they're... These followers of Jesus, they're going to come and go. Look at all the people who've come and said that they were Messiah before. Jesus said there'll be many false Christs and false prophets. How do the Jews know that he's the one? How could the disciples be sure? When Jesus was going to be hanging on the cross, and his body was all beaten and blue and bloody, and there the soldiers were gambling and cursing, and the flies were buzzing around, and someone said, yeah, this is the Messiah. Do you know how out of harmony that was with the Jewish idea of the Messiah? They were going to think, well, I guess we were wrong. Matter of fact, that's what the disciples said. You remember on the road to Emmaus, the disciples said to one another, we were hoping that he would have been the one to deliver Israel. I, obviously he's not because we thought the Messiah was going to come riding on a white horse like King David. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to defeat all our enemies. We're going to be the world's empire again like it was in the days of Solomon. And Jesus didn't do it the way they expected. So he needed to give them an experience that would endorse who he was. Now, we just came off a, a nauseating election. I'm talking about just all that happens with any election. I'm not talking about any political party here. I'm just saying elections, in my opinion, you kind of have to hold your nose and vote. Because, well, I won't go into it. But anyway... When these candidates are running for office, they're all clamoring for endorsements. And uh, sometimes they try to get movie stars and people who are famous to endorse them, or they get other popular politicians to endorse them. And you don't want somebody who's really unpopular to endorse you. I mean, you know, if you're running for public office and you say, hey, we got Jeffrey Dahmer is going to endorse this person. It doesn't help you. So you want good endorsements. If you're a Jew, and if you want to get the best endorsement you possibly can that Jesus is the Messiah that everybody's been waiting for, what two witnesses could you call on from Jewish history that would give you the most potent endorsement? Could you do better than Moses, the great lawgiver, the, the, the founder, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets? And you know, Moses said, the Lord your God in Deuteronomy chapter 28 the Lord your God will raise up a prophet unto you like me. Hear him. So there is this prophet like Moses, right there by Moses, Jesus. So he gets the two most powerful endorsements he could get. Who could you get that's more important? Nobody. In the mouth of two witnesses. Enoch. Well, I don't know that uh, he would have been more important. Not, they didn't have too many writings of Enoch. Of course, they had the book of Enoch, which is sort of dubious. But uh, I want to tell you a story. Did you all hear about when the Pope, Pope John Paul II, was, uh, made one of his visits to California, and he was uh, over in Napa? And um, he told his chauffeur he wanted to see the vineyards because it reminded him of uh, some of the beautiful places in Italy. And so the, just the chauffeur and the Pope somehow, without all his entourage, he was able to get rid of all them, and just the Pope and the chauffeur were driving down the Silverado Trail. They are near Napa. And the Pope tapped on the glass, and he said to the chauffeur, he said, look, he says, I drove all my life until I was the Pope. He says, I don't like always being driven. He said, I'd like to drive. He says, I'm in the back seat. You got the front windshield. It's a lot prettier up there. He said, let me drive. And the chauffeur said, your holiness. He said, look, I can't. He said, he said look, he says, I'm the Pope. <laughs> and he said, I want to drive. He said, look, he says, this isn't right. He says, I'm your responsibility. He said, look, you sit in the back right now so you can be excommunicated. <laughs> so he put him in the back, and the chauffeur was talking, and then the Pope said, he rolled up the electric window. He said, I don't want to hear anymore. Pope got in behind this big stretch limousine, and he's driving down the Silverado Trail, and he's finally beginning to relax and enjoy himself, and he's looking at all the, the grapes and the vineyard, and the sun was setting. It was gold. It was just very pretty. And uh, he swerves over the line, and right when a highway patrolman was there at one of the little intersections, 
and or is actually a sheriff. And he goes by and pretty soon the Pope sees in his rearview mirror the red and the blue flashing lights. And he goes, uh-oh. So he pulls over on the side of the road. There's almost nobody on the road. But he pulls him over. And pretty soon the sheriff comes out. And he walks up to the window. He taps on the glass. And the Pope rolls down the window. And he looks in. And he doesn't say anything. He just says, I'll be right back. <laughs> he goes back to his car. And he radios headquarters. And the sheriff says uh, to the dispatcher, he says, get me the chief. They patch him into the chief. He says, we've got a situation. And he said, I pulled someone over, and uh, they're pretty important. And I'm not sure what to do. And he said, well, who'd you pull over? You pull over the mayor? He said, no. No, he's more important than the mayor. He <laughs> said, oh, I said, you didn't. He said, do you pull over Schwarzenegger? He <laughs> said, no, it's, and he said, I, it's not the governor. So what did you do? Did you pull over the president of the United States? He said, no. He says, well, who'd you pull over? He says, I don't know. All I know is the pope is his driver. <laughs> so, <laughs> now I just made that up. Make sure you're awake. <laughs> I didn't make it up, but it's not a true story. But um, now if you're an evangelist, you would say it's almost true. <laughs> but the reason I told you that is to emphasize the point that how much more important do you get than Moses and Elijah when you think about it? If you're a Jew, who could Jesus call on? Can you imagine what the disciples must have thought having uh, Moses and Elijah there? So they wake up and there's this glory of light and they're not sure uh, who this is. By the way, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Did the Jews have any videotape or photographs of Moses and Elijah? Were they allowed to have any idols or paintings? That would have been idolatry. I think it's because they were talking and they overheard them addressing each other by name. Jesus addressed them by their name. For instance, if you read here in, um, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that they spoke among themselves. And this is uh, chapter 9, verse 31, same story. It says, who appeared in glory and they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now think about this. Moses and Elijah come to Jesus. Not only are they there to endorse for the disciples, they're witnesses of the disciples, this is the Messiah you've been waiting for. All that the Bible has talked about, all the promises in the Old Testament about what the Messiah was going to be like, who it was going to be, we're here to announce today we've come from heaven to earth. We're not just sending angels. We're sending other humans to serve as witnesses. He's the one that we've been looking for. Do you see what's happening here? This is the ultimate endorsement in the Bible. But what two people could you send better than Moses and Elijah? Think about this for a second. How does anybody get to heaven? Some people say, in the Old Testament, you're saved by works. In the New Testament, we're saved by grace. Is that true? Is anybody saved by works? In the Old Testament, they're saved by grace and faith looking forward to the cross. We are saved today by grace and faith looking back to the cross, but everybody in heaven will be there by virtue of the cross. There may be some people in heaven who never heard of Jesus. Isn't that right? Yeah. But they lived up to the light that God gave them. They're going to be there, but they're there because of Jesus. So does anybody get to heaven except by Jesus and his sacrifice? All right, now think about this. Three individuals that we know of, Moses, Elijah, and Enoch, got to heaven in advance of Christ's sacrifice. What happens if Jesus, for some reason, fails? Now, I'm not going to go off into the argument with you now of the hypothetical ideas of is it possible, was it possible for Jesus to fail? But you're Moses. You're in heaven for a thousand years. You really enjoy it. You're Elijah. You've been there for 500 years. You've got your new body, you've already built your, your mansion maybe, and you've made friends, you've seen all the glories, and you're there based on an advanced payment that is entirely dependent on Jesus' success on the cross. Who could you send from heaven that would be more motivated <laughs> than Moses and Elijah to encourage Jesus? Can you imagine what that conversation might have sounded like? Lord, we really like it up here. <laughs> We've made a lot of friends. This body, I feel just as good today as I did a thousand years ago. <laughs> I don't want to lose it. I'd hate to leave. 
Don't give up. And can you imagine Moses and Elijah? They're also witnesses to the poor reception Jesus has received. Now, did Jesus know about not being received? I'm sorry. Did Moses know what it felt like to almost be stoned by your own people? Did Elijah know what it felt like to have to run and hide from your own people? Who could be better sent that had experienced the rejection and the discouragement of trying to save people that didn't even appreciate you than Moses and Elijah? So there's a lot in this story. And I'm, not, I'm still just skimming the surface of what's there. So they come and they speak to him of his decease he's about to accomplish. And Moses and Elijah are saying, Lord, it will be worth it. We, we're an example. We are so grateful. Think of all the thousands that will be saved, millions that will be saved of your sacrifice. Don't be discouraged by the indifference of these guys sleeping right here. I mean, probably just waking up right about then. Peter woke up. He doesn't know what to say, you know. He's, Peter always speaks before he thinks. <laughs> oh, it's good that we're here. This is great. We'll build three tabernacles up in this mountain. We'll make a new holy mountain here. And it's probably good we don't know what mountain it is. Three temples. And they're awed by his glory. Mark chapter 9, verse 6, they were greatly afraid. You know, this is a sign of what the glory of God will be like. Here Christ is glorified. All of a sudden he's shining. See, when Jesus came to earth, his glory was veiled. Why can't we see God right now? Have you ever prayed that you could see an angel? I want to see hands. I want, I want, to, I want you to be honest with me. My hand's up. Have you ever prayed before, Lord, just show me one angel. Just let me have one little vision, one dream. Part the supernatural veil a little bit. Let me see something. Is that wrong? No, I think what we're doing is we're saying we just want our faith strengthened, right? Is it there? Are there angels in this room now? Is it possible Moses and Elijah are watching? I don't recommend you pray to them. But, you know, if there were any saints, don't pray to Mary. She's asleep. But Moses and Elijah are there. They did appear at least once. So all the disciples fell down and, and they uh, worshipped him. Moses and Elijah, they opposed counterfeit worship. And I'll talk more about that tomorrow. On Mount Carmel and Mount Sinai. And um, they fed the people. Moses sent the fire, I'm sorry, Elijah sent the fire and rain. Moses prayed and he supplied water. Elijah supplied water, so to speak. Now, I want to take a little detour from something. I told you I was going to talk about the nearness of Christ's coming. What happened here on the mountain was a miniature picture of the second coming. How did this story start? Go back to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Out of the blue, Jesus makes this cryptic statement. And he says, Verily I say unto you, there are some of you who are standing here today who will not taste of death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. By the way, the disciples didn't forget that statement. Uh, you remember when the Gospel of John, Peter says to Jesus, talking about John, is he going to live until you come? You said some of us are not going to die until they see you come. Is John one of those? They misunderstood Jesus' statement. Jesus was not saying that some of the disciples would live until the second coming. He was saying, you are going to see a picture of the second coming before you die. What it's going to be like. Then after Christ makes that statement, six days later, they have this experience. I think that's very important. It says, after six days, he took them up. Now, have you read those verses in the Bible? 2 Peter, in chapter 3. It says, Beloved, verse 8, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. After six days, he took them up. How old is the world now if you add up the ages in the Bible? I'm not going to you know, argue with what your beliefs might be about the age of the planet. I'm talking about biblical history. Adam, you know, he lived 930 years. It tells he was 130, I think, when he had Seth, but he probably had Cain and Abel shortly after leaving the garden. Um, we know how long he lived, and you can add up all the genealogies in the Bible, and Bishop Usher's chronology is sort of a loose one that we've operated off. That makes the world right now right about 6,000 years. 
You ought to take your Ellen White software and type in 6,000 years and see how many times the spirit of prophecy very specifically says that the time period for Satan's rule is 6,000 years. And then how long do we spend in heaven? 1,000 years. 6,000 years, God is sowing the seed of the gospel. 1,000 years of rest. Six days work, one day rest. There's a pattern there. But I think it's interesting. It says after six days, he took them up. Now, Ella White says this experience, if you read in the book Desire of Ages, is a miniature picture for the second coming. You just go to the Desire of Ages. I, I didn't put the note in here. I just realized it's under the chapter on the Mount of Transfiguration. She talks about this. Matthew 17, 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up. He makes the statement. And he leads them up. Now, 2 Peter, a day with the Lord like a thousand years. Peter's quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. A thousand years a day. Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. There you got another kind of a different analogy. If a day is like a thousand years, and God said to Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat thereof, you will die. Did Adam and Eve die the day they ate the forbidden fruit? But if a day equals a thousand years, did they die in the day? Compared to eternity, you and I might think, well, that's not the same thing, a thousand years in a day. If you're created to live forever, and you die in the first millennium, what is 1,000 years compared to eternity? You really start to stretch that out and you realize it's nothing. So for angels and for those who are thinking in eternal terms to say in the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. Did any man make it to 1,000? They all died in the day. No one lived that long except Enoch. He's the oldest man who ever lived. Methuselah is the oldest man who ever died. Right? And he made it to 969. So, a few, more, a few more verses I want to give you on this subject. Do you find a pattern in the Bible for six days you work and one day you rest? You'll buy a Hebrew servant. Six years he'll serve you. In the seventh year he will go free for nothing. After six, you're liberated. After 6,000, Jesus comes to liberate us. After six years you sow your land. And six years you'll sow your land and gather on all the fruit. But the seventh year you let it rest and lie dormant. You're supposed to just leave the land alone. Let it lie fallow for that year. When Jesus comes in Revelation, how is he pictured coming? Isn't it with a sickle? For what purpose? To harvest the earth. What is the seed? It's the word. For 6,000 years, not just since the time of Christ, God's been sowing the gospel for 6,000 years. The truth. He's been sowing the word of God for 6,000 years. He's coming to harvest. And then what is the condition of the earth during the 1,000 years? You know, the last thing it says in the Old Testament, I'm talking about chronologically the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were carried off to Babylon, it says, So the land rested for 70 years. It was desolate. For all the time that it rested, it kept Sabbath. You know why God did that? Because they would not obey this law about letting the land rest every seventh year. And God says, well, I'm going to force it to rest every seventh year. The land is going to keep Sabbath while it's desolate. What's the condition of the world during the 1,000 years? It's desolate. It's a 1,000-year Sabbath before God creates a new heaven and a new earth. While we're living and reigning and resting in the temple of God, worshiping God in heaven, the earth is keeping Sabbath while we're keeping Sabbath there. Right? So there's a pattern there. We're, we're not done yet. Exodus 24, 16. Another verse you might want to write down. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. We all know that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, but people miss the verse that precedes that. Moses waited at the base of the mountain for how long? Six days. And after six days, the Lord called to him, he went up into the mountain. Isn't that interesting? What direction do we go when Jesus comes? We go up. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. You find this principle all through the Bible. Now, do we know exactly how old the world is? I don't know. You know, people got all excited back in 1996 because they said, according to Bishop Usher's chronology, if creation is 4004 B.C., keep in mind B.C., you go back four years, um, 
Jesus should have come 2,000 years after that. Well, it didn't happen. Then everyone got excited the year 2000. Somehow they thought that God went along with you know, this uh, Gregorian calendar that they picked out, that he was going to come right on the year 2000. I remember in 99, I was in New York City, and boy, I tell you, there was a lot of excitement. Uh, you should have been in New York City in the fall of 1999 when Hillary Clinton was running for senator. The New York Mets, New York, are playing the New York Yankees, and they had the New York Marathon, and the millennium was about to end, and a new one was about to begin, and we're having our net series, and we went to the top of the World Trade Center three times to pray for the city. Well, I tell you, that was something I'll never forget, that. But I told everybody during the series, it's on tape. You can still watch it. I said, everyone's excited about Y2K, and they think the world's going to end. I said, I don't think it's going to happen. That's pretty bold to say that. Well, you know why? Because Jesus said, in such an hour as you think not. And everybody was like this. I said, it's not going to happen like that. It's going to happen when you're sleeping. And so, uh, right now we're living in what you call the time of delay. Now think about this for a second. The approximate date for creation, based on Bishop Usher's chronology, you add up the dates, you'll come up to something like that, is approximately 4004 B.C. There's a little period in there they're not sure of because it says Noah had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He was 300 years old. It makes it sound like they're triplets. It doesn't tell exactly, you know, when they were all three born. So there's a couple of nebulous areas we're not sure of. But it's approximately 4004 B.C. What we do know is 2,000 years later, Abraham was born. So you could say Adam was born 4004. Except he was born with a belly button or without? What do you think? <laughs> Did Adam need a belly button? <laughs> Just for, yeah, for this, so the kids wouldn't feel like there's something wrong with them. <laughs> but, um, or it may have had, I don't know, I won't go there. But <laughs> I remember my kids asking me that question one day and totally stumped me. But, um, so then from Adam, you go 2,000 years, you got Abraham, 2004 BC. Now a new age begins. First, God preaches the gospel through the patriarchs. They are Adam, Methuselah, Noah, Enoch, the patriarchs. Then Adam is born, I'm sorry, Abraham is born 2004 BC. For the next 2,000 years, God preaches the gospel through the Hebrews, the Jews. Exactly 2,000 years later, 4 BC, Jesus was not born the year zero. Since they set up that calendar, they did some more historical stuff, came in, they found out that they, when they tried to peg it, so they could start dating all history from the birth of Christ. Years after they got it all pegged and everybody had written it all down, it's in all the records, they found out they were four years off. So Christ was actually born four years before Christ. <laughs> and one reason they know that is they're sure that Herod the Great, the king who killed all the babies in Bethlehem, he died 2 BC. Christ had to be born before he died. Does that make sense to everybody? So they figure it was about 4 BC. But isn't that interesting? Adam, the age of the patriarchs, 2,000 years. The age of the Jews, 2,000 years. The age of the church or spiritual Israel, 2,000 years. And then 1,000 years, we live and reign with Christ during the millennium. But wait a second. It looks like he's late based on that. Do you know that that's foretold in the Bible? A delay is part of the plan. One of the last things Jesus says in Matthew 24, before the second coming, he says, if that evil servant will say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming and begins to eat and drink with the wicked and smite his fellow servants, the master of that servant will come in a day when he's not looking for him in an hour he's not prepared for. If that evil servant says, my Lord delays. And you know, it's almost like Jesus is quoting the experience of Moses because it says, I think it's Exodus 32, when Moses delayed coming down the mountain, what did God's church do? They began to worship like the heathen. I'll talk about that tomorrow. I don't want to go down that road right now. Then you uh, have another example. You remember King Saul was going to battle against, God was going to establish his kingdom. He's going to battle against the Philistines. Samuel said, wait for me. I'll come to you. When the seventh day comes, I'll be there. Meaning after six days, when the seventh day comes, I'll come. Well, after six days... The seventh day began, Samuel didn't come. Saul gets a little nervous, 
And he says, look, you know, they're getting ready to launch the attack. We haven't offered sacrifice yet. I know I'm not the priest, but we've got to do something. And so he had the audacity to say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm the king. After all, I'm anointed. So he took the prerogatives that belonged to the sons of Levi. He offered sacrifice. He shouldn't have done it. It says, when Samuel was delayed, Saul lost patience. He compromised. He said, after all, the other kings are also priests. I should be as good as them. See, the other nations, the kings and the priests were the same. But with Israel, they had a priesthood. They had a king. They didn't mix their offices. You remember what happened when Uzzah thought he could do what the priest did and he broke out with leprosy? You're not supposed to take the priest's office. And then Samuel came. And he said, you've done foolishly. You're losing the crown because you lost patience. There's a lesson for us. Does God have a crown for us? Could we lose our crown because we're way, we lose faith during the delay? And then Christ in Matthew 25, talking about the ten virgins, all sleeping, because the, when the bridegroom tarried, they lost faith and they gave up. So does it shock you that near the end there appears to be a delay? Or is that exactly what Jesus said would happen? And then you've got that prophecy. I don't even know if I wrote that down. And, and I'm getting older. I'm losing my memory. In Habakkuk, where it says, Though the vision seemed to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not tarry. You all know which one I'm talking about? And see if someone here finds that, you can call it out and I'll tell everybody. But uh, so that's, that's part of what's expected. That there's this apparent delay before Jesus comes back. So do you see a pattern? 2,000 years, 2,000 years, 2,000 years, 1,000 years of rest. 6,000 years, God sows the seed of the gospel. He comes to harvest. 6,000 years, humanity's been enslaved by the devil. Christ comes to liberate and set the slaves free. When he comes, it's the great jubilee. Uh, you've got these patterns. Oh, wait, I left out one of the best ones. Got to keep watching my watch here. If you look in, I think it is 2 Kings... Chapter 11, when Athaliah, the wicked queen, she's the daughter of Jezebel, by the way, her son is killed by Jehu. When Athaliah saw that her son Ahaziah was dead, she arose and she destroyed all the royal seed. She killed all the descendants of David that had a right to the throne, except one slipped through her fingers, Joash. And a nurse stole him away. You know, I just heard a story in India. You, you heard that story about um, those attacks in Mumbai. While I was just in Prague, uh, I saw it. I saw in the news in English about all I could watch was CNN and understand it. And that's when they had these Indian attacks. And I remember them telling the story about um, these uh, terrorists went into this one Jewish uh, visitor center. And there were several people there. And a young rabbi, Holtzberg, and his wife, um, and they had a little boy about two years old, took care of the place. And the terrorists came in and they forced everybody upstairs. They had a nanny named Sandra who did, did cooking and also helped take care of their little two-year-old named Moshe, which is Moses. And when the terrorists came in, she instinctively hid. The baby was upstairs with his mother. She hid uh, in a closet by the refrigerator and they went through and they're shooting everywhere and she's hearing screaming and hid for a while. And pretty soon she said, you know, I can't stay here. She heard the baby cry upstairs and she heard um, her name is Rivica or Rebecca in English, Mrs. Holzberg was crying, Sandra, Sandra, help. And she couldn't stand it anymore. And she ran upstairs and ran kind of past some of the terrorists that had guns. I don't know if they were shooting. Ran into where the, the Holzbergs were, and there they were lying on the ground. They were dead. And the baby was on top of his parents alive. They had sprayed them with bullets and missed the baby somehow. Because they killed a lot of other kids that day. It's not that they felt sorry for the baby. She scooped up the baby and ran right through them, basically daring them to stop her. And she was the only one that made it out. I always thought about that story about how the nurse of Joash, when they're slaughtering all of his brothers, somehow got him out of the palace. Just like Moses was rescued by his family when they're killing all the baby boys. Makes you wonder, that little boy in Moses, what he's going to grow up and do. It's kind of interesting. And so they, um, they hide Joash in the temple for six years. He's in the temple. He's the son of David. Athaliah, this wicked queen, the daughter of Jezebel. Picture for a minute that woman in Revelation 17, that scarlet harlot that sits on the beast. Athaliah represents her. Bloodthirsty, 
a pagan. She introduces pagan worship. She's sitting on the throne of Israel, but she's making them worship like pagans. Isn't that what the church did during the Dark Ages? Kills all the royal seed, persecutes the prophets of God. I mean, there's a lot of parallels there. At the end, catch this now. You read the story for yourself. 2 Kings 11, I'm almost sure. At the end of six years, Jehoshaphat, the, or um, Jehoiada the priest, by the way, he lived longer than Moses, 130 years. Jehoiada the priest says, we need to make him king. The baby turns seven. It's after six years of being in the house of the Lord. He says, we're going to do it as the Sabbath begins. That's interesting. After six years and after six days. He says, we're going to bring him out. We're going to have all the soldiers guard him. We're going to blow the trumpets as we welcome the Sabbath. We're going to coronate him king. He's coming out of the temple. We're going to put the crown on his head. We're going to blow the trumpet. We're going to welcome the Sabbath. And we're going to announce him as king because all the people used to come Friday evening to welcome the Sabbath to the temple. They thought that'd be a great time to do it. That same moment when they brought out Joash, the son of David. By the way, where's Jesus right now? Is he in the temple? When is he coming out? Isn't it going to be when he comes to get us next? Is he the son of David? Are they going to blow the trumpets when he comes? It says they blew the trumpets. The people rejoiced. Athaliah heard the noise. She comes running into the courtyard. She says treason, treason. She tears her clothes. And the high priest said, seize her and all who follow her. Take her out of the city and execute them. What's going to happen to the wicked at the end of the 1,000 years? Aren't they destroyed? The devil and all that follow him? And Babylon? I mean, it's a parallel. This story is an incredible parallel for the end. But it says... After six years is when it happens. So back to Moses and Elijah. Did you see the parallels of what I'm talking about? We're living in that time where you're the last generation. And we're supposed to get the message out. And I just want you to get excited. I'm not setting a date. I hope everyone knows that. I don't know when he's coming. No man knows the day or the hour. But I know it's near. Because I can hear the church snoring. <laughs> and, and that's a sign that Christ is coming soon. Uh, you know, then I think it's interesting. Not only does... Moses and Elijah appear. They hear another voice. The voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And of course, Christ is in white robes as he will be when he comes. God the Father is there. Christ is coming in the glory of the Father. This whole thing was a miniature picture of the second coming. Moses represents the ones who died and are resurrected, right? Elijah represents the ones who will not die, but they're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. They're translated. So the whole thing is a miniature picture of the second coming. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you will not taste of death till you see the kingdom of God come. You're going to have a portal open. You're going to see what it's going to be like when the kingdom of God comes. Christ is coming in the glory of the Father. There's the Father there. And he says, this is my beloved son. Can you argue with those three witnesses in the mouth of two or three witnesses, Moses, Elijah, and the Almighty, that says, He's the one, pointing to Jesus. Can we ever doubt that Jesus is the one? I mean, if you're not going to accept the testimony of Moses, Elijah, and God Almighty, then who are you going to believe? Right? It's like Jesus said, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, they won't be persuaded that one should rise from the dead. Then the disciples are now cowering in fear, the, the resonance of the Father's voice in this brilliant glory. They're probably just ready to vaporize from fear. And pretty soon they venture to look up, the light dims. You ever seen lightning? You can even see it with your eyes closed. And uh, pretty soon they can even with their eyes closed see that the light's faded. And they venture to look up and it says only Jesus is with them. I like that. Jesus only with them. Even when everyone else leaves. Does he leave? He says, I'll never leave you. Then they're going down the mountain. I've got to finish with this. I, I, I'm almost done. They're going down the mountain. And this always to me is one of the most amazing parts of the story. And Jesus says to the apostles... Don't tell anybody about this till after I rise from the dead. That is one of the greatest miracles in the Bible that you would ask those three fishermen not to tell anybody <laughs> that story. I think, Jesus told, I think Jesus called fishermen because they already had a gift of being colorful speakers. But he asks them, don't tell anyone until I rise from the dead what you've seen. Did they ever forget that? I've often thought how hard it would be for me just to give, try and give you a picture of what that would be like. You know, can you imagine right now if some guys with black suits and 
dark sunglasses and earpieces come running into this room and they usher me off the stage and they say, Pastor Doug, you got to come with us right away, please. And uh, they bring me to the San Jose airport and there's Air Force One parked there. And uh, I, wow. And they bring me up the steps and they frisk me and uh, take away all my weapons. And then <laughs> they bring me into this room and there's President Bush. And he says, oh, Doug, I'm glad you came. I know, I know you were busy speaking, but I just really needed to talk to you. And we were leaving. And, and he said, have you met Vladimir Putin? I'd like you to meet Vladimir Putin. And, and here's Brother Brown from England. And uh, we've been watching your TV programs. And we need to ask you some questions about prophecy. So I stumble through a, a Bible study, probably just totally speechless. And uh, by the way, I want you to know, I was at the White House on a tour just with my family. And I have Nathan and Stephen with me, and the CIA, Secret Service, are there. And Nathan kept touching everything. I said, don't, I said, don't touch, don't touch. You know, that's a picture of Benjamin Franklin. Don't touch it. And, and so he's, he's touching all this White House stuff. I said, no, no, no. And, they, and the Secret Service are there, and they're kind of eyeing us. And pretty soon one of them says, come here. I said, oh, no, what did he do? And the Secret Service guy calls me over. He says, I just want you to know, Brother Bachelor, I appreciate your programs. <laughs> I said, I said, Wow, really? I said, you mean there's people in the White House that are watching our programs? He said, oh, yeah, there's probably more of us than you think. I thought, well, so who knows? This could happen. <laughs> I'm still waiting. He, he's got another month in office. And so then they bring me back here. And just before George Bush directs me to the, the door, he says, thanks so much for coming, Doug. And they let me go. And he said, oh, by the way, of course, you can't tell anybody about this. <laughs> could I do that? <laughs> I mean, listen to me now. <laughs> I couldn't do that. And so you can understand why the disciples would never forget this experience. You look in 2 Peter. This is my last verse, and I'm done. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Peter never forgot this experience. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him on the holy mount. And we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Do we have anything more sure than the Bible? Peter is saying, I saw Moses, I saw Elijah, I heard the voice of the Father, I saw Jesus glorified, but we've got something even more dependable than what I saw. It's the Word of God, the prophecy. And in the same way, God wanted Jesus to give Peter, James, and John an experience to prepare them for the hour of the cross. That's why they had the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. God wants us to have an experience right now with Moses and Elijah to give us victory in the hour of trial that's coming. I think we're right on the borders of eternity. I don't know how much time is left, but this is the end. I really think this is the last generation. And that's why we need to take our time now to set aside time to get to know the Word inside and out, that we're ready to give an answer to anyone that asks us the reason for our hope with meekness and fear. Can you say amen? amen. Let's stand together as we close, and we'll pray and ask Him for that. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you and praise you for this reminder in your word that we can and we must have an experience like this with you on the mountain. Help us, Lord, speak to us through the words of the law and the prophets. And I pray that we can um, just believe the endorsement that you've given that Jesus is the one we're looking for. We also know, Lord, that uh, the time is not far distant when we will be taken up that we are living in that last generation. I pray that we can order our lives personally, spiritually. We can allow you to calibrate our calendars so that everything we do is focused on seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us to have an experience, Lord, where we are really walking with you, even as Enoch did. Pour out your spirit on this convention. I pray that you'll be with every individual. Help us to know most of all what it means to have our sins forgiven to be surrendered to you, and then mobilize us with a love for you and that energy to share the good news with others. We thank you, and we pray these things in Christ's name.
This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.